The reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 38. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit 
and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who you speak to am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Good evening. Nice to see you, and a very, very happy new year. Let's pray that God would speak to us and open our eyes tonight. Would you join me in praying? Father God, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for this passage of scripture. And we pray tonight, Lord, you would open our eyes afresh and open our hearts to you and what you want to do in us and with us and through us. We pray that the thoughts and words I prepared would be useful for building us up and building your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that I'm amongst many preachers today who, when they were sitting in their studies, thinking about what to speak about at the beginning of the year 2020, found it irresistible to link 2020 with vision. It's a sort of no-brainer, and I couldn't resist the temptation. And I want to talk more particularly about this passage in John chapter 4, a very, very familiar passage to most of us, I feel sure, because it's so often plundered, because it's such a great story, it's such a great incident. We're told it in full, it's very easy to picture yourself as eavesdropping, almost watching this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And I've heard lots of sermons, you've heard lots of sermons from the perspective of how to do evangelism. But that's not my perspective tonight, actually. I, I want to focus on when Jesus says, open your eyes. And I want to talk about 
the importance of aligning our own lives and aligning this church to what God's vision is for us. Now when we use the word vision just in contemporary talk with your friends, I, I get my sight tested by going to the Oculus. And we understand that's what vision means. What's your vision like today? Well, in terms of what I'm seeing, that's one use of a word. But in scripture, there's another use of a word, vision. And that is God's preferred future for you. God's desired future, referring to the future. So I would understand it if you said, ask me, what's God's vision for Holy Trinity? It doesn't mean how closely does he see us. It means what's he expecting of us? What's he looking forward to happening? And it's, it's important that, obviously important, that we align our lives with God's vision for us. And one of the reasons it's important is this. God's vision for you, I can tell you this much about his vision for every single one of us. It's that every year we learn to rely on him more. Every year you build on what you've learned of him from last year to trust him even more in this coming year. So if you wrote out on a piece of paper what you believe is God's vision for you for 2020, and you can accomplish it all in your own strength, I'm telling you with confidence that is not God's vision for you. Because what he loves is when we walk by faith. It's that bit of our lives where we're frankly insecure in our own strength, but forced to rely on him for him to act. And those opportunities come very, very often. It, sometimes it's relying on him for strength when you're under duress to keep going or when you've been given a medical diagnosis that you can't control and you need his help or when your finances dive and you can't see how you're going to hold it together or it's looking to him for Christ-likeness in your life which you know on your own you can't produce or looking to him for strength and joy and love and satisfaction these are the areas that God is constantly trying to grow in us constantly raising our game as a church, as a family, as individuals, to lift up our eyes in the expectation that he will act more and more. Now, turning to this passage, if we were to view it as a sight test with Jesus as the optician and the disciples as the patient, it begins appallingly badly. Now, I know about sight tests in my past, I've had a detached retina in my right eye, and I have glaucoma. So I'm pretty used to struggling at the opticians. But the test has never begun as badly as it does for the disciples. Because the disciples' vision is impaired because they have their eyes shut. You know, in no sight test have I sat down and the optician said, Rupert, we could improve your sight pretty dramatically if you just open your eyes. You know, that, that's a bad place to begin. But Jesus resorts to saying that to the disciples. Verse 35. Open your eyes. You're simply not seeing what's going on around you. And what's happened in this story from a disciple's point of view 
is the gap between what God's preferred future for them is and their own expectations has become alarming. And the gap between what God is actually doing right in the moment and what they thought was going on is frighteningly large. So what is going on? Well, we, the reader, know and are aware that a wonderful life-changing encounter has just gone on. The woman at the well's life is being transformed forever. And we know that a revival is literally around the corner. It's about to break out. The whole village where the Samaritan woman goes is about to turn to Christ. But the disciples aren't thinking about that at all. Their mindset is on the takeaway falafel, the cucumber and fish sandwich that they've just brought for Jesus at the local deli. And over the months of following Jesus, the disciples somehow have lowered their sights. I think it's reasonable to think that in the very early days, being close to Jesus was one huge adventure. And life-changing results were everywhere to be seen. You think back, Andrew went and fetched his brother Simon, remember? Simon's mother-in-law is healed from a fever. The guy Nathaniel sitting under a tree, he's enlisted and joins them. And day to day there are surprises just by being in Jesus' shadow. You never knew who he was going to call to him next. It could be a tax collector here, a couple of revolutionaries there, the exuberant Peter or the lugubrious Thomas. They were heady days. I'm sure they were still talking to each other in the evenings about that incredible wedding in Cana. But alongside those highlights, this was beginning to prove hard work and uncomfortable work, unpredictable as well. Jesus rarely seems to take the obvious step forward. Instead of staying where he's appreciated and wanted, where people are clamoring for more of him and to see more of what he does, he insists on pushing on and reaching out. And now along with the admirers, it's becoming increasingly clear that the story is being invaded by detractors and objectors who keep showing up and asking trying questions, trick questions, objectionable questions. And it's all becoming a bit much and the disciples are tired and Jesus himself is weary. And isn't this a pattern that we know well? Because the territory that Jesus leads us into is so often involves, yes, wonderful things, but elements of testing, elements of discomfort, elements of pushing us out of our strength. And they're weary. And a point I just want to register here at the outset is weariness distorts vision. If you are weary, as the disciples were, watch out because there's a self-preservation instinct to go back to the last place you felt safe and to just hunker down to be secure and unchallenged why wouldn't you go there why wouldn't you retreat to shelter in the glories of yesterday if you like and in this episode the disciples not for the last time and not for the first time really they exemplify that pattern of behavior. Now what's going on in terms of vision is this. 
They've shrunk God's vision to fit their landscape rather than align their horizons to accommodate God's desires. And so they say to him, what are you doing talking to a woman? Verse 27. A Samaritan woman at that. And while we're about it, what are you doing talking to that kind of a woman? Now, the solutions are at hand, and there's plenty in this passage we're going to look at together, which is super encouraging. But we just want to flag up. I want to flag up. We're not in a place to buy into God's vision if we're just flattened with weariness. And actually, much of this talk is about the importance of mission to God's vision. And I want to talk to us like personally as a congregation and just say, if we're weary, it's to be expected that we will find this whole mission thing incredibly challenging. And it would be sort of not quite dishonest, but it would be almost like a waste of time giving the rest of a talk trying to up our enthusiasm mission even in our hearts we're saying to ourselves look it's like one of those ball games where it says tilt game over because you're saying hang on a minute I, I'm overwhelmed so it, it, I'm not saying we're all like that because I know that's not true but the disciples were like that at the beginning of this story the good news part of the good news is this any major enterprise any major enterprise, not just any major spiritual enterprise, is going to be very, very demanding. And it's going to require a long, long obedience in the same direction. And Jesus' enterprise to build the kingdom of God all the way around the world, that sounds pretty ambitious and significant and demanding. It's not going to be accomplished overnight or without a great deal of application. Remember, there's just Jesus plus the 12 at this particular point in time. Sometime before Christmas, uh, I enjoyed watching three documentary programs on Netflix, which the title was more or less something like Inside the Mind of Bill Gates. And I'm not really here to give a commercial for Netflix or Bill Gates, but the interesting thing is it, it profiled this guy's ambitions to contribute significantly to some major projects. And it told you what those projects were. And he has sunk his charitable foundation into trying to do enormous, enormous life-changing projects. The ones they happened to highlight were trying to eradicate polio from planet Earth, trying to invent a clean, clean energy source, and trying to significantly improve uh, sanitation in India uh, because he was appalled by how many children were dying of diarrhea. And it, it, I found these programs extremely fascinating, but one of the things that was eye-opening was none of those projects have proved successful yet. But Mr. Gates' enthusiasm for them hasn't diminished. And he ha doesn't regret a single day or an hour or any of his money going into these things, he is making a difference. But it's taking a lot of effort and involving a lot of people. And weariness is part of what comes with the territory. It shouldn't surprise us if in building the kingdom of God with Jesus as our leader, it's a huge project. It's not going to be done overnight. 
And it is going to involve quite a lot of application and effort. Don't shrink your vision because you're weary. Just acknowledge where you're at before God. And don't give up because the second point is, when we're weary, don't just watch out, look out. That is Jesus' model. He was weary too. In verse 6 we're told, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Being tired doesn't disqualify you. And we know what happens. We know the Samaritan comes to the well and Jesus embarks on this dialogue which will change her life. Will you give me a drink? And it's the beginning of that well-known conversation. Don't shrink back. Reach out. That's what I see going on here. Opportunities to share your faith come at inconvenient times from unexpected people. Have you found that? Think about it for a moment. When, when is a convenient time to share your faith? Well, I suspect many of us would say, again, not all of us, but some of us would say, well, a convenient time to share my faith would be when only the person I want to talk to is listening. I don't want to be embarrassed by other people overhearing this conversation. So semi-privately, that would be good. Secondly, when we're not competing with other things in my diary, when I've got time to have that conversation. But when you think about it a bit more, life never works like that, does it? It's not like you can put in your diary. I don't think you can. Okay, Thursday week, I'm going to give God half an hour of my time. After I've dropped, dropped the children off at school, before I go to work, I'm, I'm going to walk around Cambridge trying to look like a Christian looking for the loss. And that'll be his evangelistic opportunity. Well, I've never tried that, but I don't think it'll work. It, it rarely seems to fall out like that. It's going to be in the middle of a normal day, like it was for Jesus, perhaps when you're not in your best form, like it was for Jesus, but there'll be a dynamic moment which is the opportunity God has laid on his heart and your heart and the other person's heart and a life-changing conversation could happen. Let's turn the question the upside down. Is there such a thing as a bad time to change a life for God? No, every day, every moment's a good time if God gives us an opportunity. This is encouraging to keep pressing on, keep reaching out. And I want to say, in all the rest of my points tonight, they're all encouragements to press on with this vision because mission is the core of God's vision. Mission is the core of God's vision. In fact, we could say, if mission is missing from our vision, then we've detached from God's plan. It's as simple as that. Because he says to his disciples, doesn't he? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We call it the Great Commission. Has God changed his mind? Absolutely not. Is it taking an age to accomplish this project? Yes, it is. But in the light of eternity, this age will seem like the blink of an eye. And you can see in verse 23 in this well-known passage that Jesus says, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Now notice that. They're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. I once saw that 
encapsulated on a bumper sticker brilliantly. It just said, Carpenter looking for joiners. And that is exactly it. You know, evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus, that's not my idea. It's not your idea. It's God's idea. The picture here is that God is looking, the Father is looking for people as he roams through the earth, seeing what's going on, looking for people who have a heart towards worshipping him. And then he'll reveal himself in spirit and in truth, just like he does to this woman. And that's why we can be rock-solid secure that when Holy Trinity has it at the center of its vision to reach out with Jesus so that people can get to know him, we are doing God's work. This is center of his vision. You know, they don't have to call a committee in heaven of, of a big ups, you know, the, the COBRA committee. Do you know what COBRA stands for? The cabinet office briefing rooms. You know, I don't know if they have a cabinet office in heaven. I rather think not. Anyhow, it doesn't seem right to have a COBRA in heaven. So I think it'll be a WASP committee. It'll be the Word and Spirit committee. And when they meet together, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's an amazing committee because they're always of one mind, but they, they, they don't have to debate. They don't have to have a debate and say, oh no, look, Holy Trinity Church has gone off track again. It's doing that jolly old Alpha course. And oh gosh, on Wednesday night, they're asking for our help because they've got an invitation event. We, we know when we do those things, we're pressing on and pressing out with what's on the heart of God because mission is at the center of his vision. And when that committee gets to work in heaven and begins to shake us up, we, see, we just see all sorts of things happening. Here's some of the things you expect to see. An appetite for prayer. An appetite for prayer. People start to pray that we will see lives changed. And that's the work of the Spirit itself, that we should even want to pray. And then you'll see divine encounters. What I mean by that is it's like God's got hold of people's diaries and manipulates things so that they meet someone who can lead them to Christ. You know, it's very odd. At the beginning of this passage, we're told Jesus had to go through Samaria in verse 4. But one commentary points out to me that Geographically, he didn't have to go through Samaria. To get from A to B, where on the journey he's on, it wasn't necessary for him to go through Samaria. But if he was going to meet this woman, it is necessary that he goes through Samaria. God aligns the meeting. And that kind of thing can happen. It's many people's stories, looking back, that they met just the right person at just the right time. And then there's a kind of revelation that happens when God's at work backing us as we reach out to people. People's eyes just light up with an understanding and knowledge of God. And there's a welcome to the invitation. It, when you invite people to these kind of events like the invitation supper or alpha, it isn't like herding cats when God's at work. It's much more like welcoming the hungry to a banquet. He fills the hungry with good things. Taste and see the Lord is good. We've got that little saying, come in and smell the coffee. I do regularly. Come in and taste the gospel. Come in and know the difference God can make. That's so often people's stories of joining HT and 
coming to know God. They can see and sense something different. So number one encouragement, to engage in mission is to be at the central part of God's vision. Number two, God will do more than you and I can ask or imagine when it comes to this dimension. He will change lives that you and I would never think he would step into. The disciples were pretty sure of this, that if there was one person that God would not be interested in, it would be this Samaritan woman. Because she was a Samaritan, she was a woman, she'd mess up her past, she had a pretty complicated present. But none of that was an obstacle to God changing her life. And frankly, many of us, if you knew our backstories, you would know we're in every bit as parlous a place as that Samaritan woman. I found out years after I became a follower of Jesus Christ that my sister-in-law prayed for me for about three or four years before I became a Christian. And this is what she prayed. She prayed for everyone else. And the very last sentence of her prayer was, and Lord, when it comes to Rupert, I just don't know what to say. Well, it worked. (laughs) But I'm reminding us that no one, no one is unreachable. No one. As I was penning that, I was thinking, well, not quite true, Rupert. The proud are unreachable. We're told that the proud he sends empty away. But we're also told he humbles the proud. He puts down the mighty from their thrones. He's good at that. And when they're put down from their thrones, they become open to God. Anyway, this Samaritan woman, pride isn't her problem. A life of hard knocks has reduced her to a place, really, where brokenness is her problem. Shame. The lack of confidence she has. The wariness when this man starts a conversation. The defeatism. The lack of self-worth. These are all part of her daily diet. The rejection of her friends so that she's on her own in the middle of a day the broken relationships which have scarred her life, the five efforts that she's had at trying to be in a relationship with a man and they've all failed. But to Jesus, he's come to seek and save the lost. And he reaches out to her. But what I'm saying is you and I can't judge by outward appearance what's going on inside at all. Our task is to bring people one step closer to Jesus. To start a conversation that goes, if only you knew who it is that's before you and what he could give you. You could ask and he would transform your life. If only you knew. And a third encouragement is this. Every life saved makes an impact for the kingdom. Every single life saved. We see from John chapter 4, one woman's transformation ends up changing an entire village, doesn't it? I was reading about a man called Albert McMakin. And when he was 24 years old, he was converted. He was an American. He was a farmer. And in his enthusiasm, he did everything that he could to try and lead his friends to Jesus Christ. 
And there was one particular young guy who he particularly wanted to hear about Jesus. But this guy was very attractive. He was living a life which was very, very busy. He seemed to have a lot of female admirers. And despite Albert's invitations that he should go to the, the local city and should hear this Christian speaker, he evaded every invitation. But Albert was a cunning and resourceful chap. And he said to him, Billy, you can drive, and I would like you to drive the truck for me on Wednesday night, whatever night it was, and uh, I've got a dozen people who want to go, and would you be their driver? And this Billy guy said, yeah, okay. And as it happened, he sat and listened to the message, and he became a Christian. In the fullness of time, that person, Billy, has spoken to 210 million people in person about the Christian faith. He became a confidant of nine American presidents. He spoke not live, but through television and so on, to over half the world's population. His name, of course, was Billy Graham. Now, the thing is, we can't all be Billy Grahams. But we can be Albert McMakins, if you've got a truck. You can involve other people and invite them to hear about Jesus. And who knows what the future will be as a result of your obedience. And lastly, an encouragement I see in this episode is this. It takes a team to reap a harvest. I think sometimes some of us could be put off this whole let's share our faith business. Because we say to ourselves, look, I meet people who seem far better equipped than me than doing this. And they often have good stories about how they led this person to Christ on an airplane or how they had this conversation in a supermarket. But for me, you know, that, that kind of thing just not going to happen. I'm not that kind of a person. And you may be right. But this is teamwork. And there are so many parts to play. We can pray. You can be part of that movement. We can take opportunities as they present themselves. We can go on believing together and encouraging one another to keep faithful to God's good news, to keep reaching out, because we believe that's the way that he saves people. We can finance the work. We could, let's think of what's happening here in the next few weeks. We could cook for the evenings. We might be able to come and help wait on the tables to set up or to clear up. We can just encourage, encourage, encourage. Because I'm sure of this, as we look over our shoulder, we reflect, it generally isn't one conversation that leads you into God's kingdom, is it? It's a whole series of events, often spread over years. It's a snippet of conversation here. It's a kind person there. It's someone else's generosity over there. It was attending that church. It was God doing this in your life. And the whole thing comes together. That's exactly what Jesus says. And our part is to be faithful and outward looking now. And our, our reassurance is this. It's actually God who does the changing lives business. You know, in the early days of Alpha, when it was beginning to make waves and an impact in what was going on up and down this country and abroad, a load of intellectuals tried to analyze it and see, you know, why is it so successful? 
And someone said, oh, it's all down to the food. And someone else said, oh, it's all down to the formula. Well, no, it isn't. It's, it's down to Jesus Christ. It's down to the gospel. It get people within a sniff of Jesus, and he is compelling. And he draws people to himself. And it's a testimony, it's a story that we have to share. The village turned to this woman, and they say, well, it said of them, verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of a woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And through her testimony, they take one step towards Jesus until their story becomes personal. And they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the savior of the world. I don't fish. But whenever I've met a fisherman, they normally tell you about the huge fish that they caught. But they may not tell you about the thousands of fish that got away, or the hours that they spent trying to catch a fish and came home with nothing. Perhaps sometimes people talking about evangelism give the impression that every attempt leads to success. But I don't think that's the case. But it doesn't mean we stop. Failure would be simply stopping to cast the gospel. Last year we ran Alpha. The last few years we've run Alpha because we think it's a very good way of connecting people with the good news of Jesus Christ. The numbers were not huge last year. The numbers may not be huge this year. I hope they will be, but they may not be. But that wouldn't indicate failure. Failure would be simply not trying, simply not laying the tables, simply not being faithful to the vision that God's given to his church. So I hope that you'll join me. I hope that you'll really get behind what's going on in this January when this new Alpha course is starting. I hope that you'll pray for it. Jana will be running it with Oli Benyon. And they would love your prayer support. They've got a very good team of volunteers already aligned. There's going to be a group that's praying here while Alpha goes on. It would be really wonderful, wouldn't it, to see a big harvest. The supper this Wednesday, it's borderline almost too late to sign up. Not that we haven't got room. We've got so much room. But for catering purposes, we have to order the food tomorrow for Wednesday. So if you want to sign up and invite your friends, you've really got to get cracking because I think tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, that's when the whole thing will shut up shop in terms of uh, taking bookings. But let's be praying and prayerful. And really, I've been preaching this sermon to me as well as to you. Because it's so important that our vision aligns in 2020 with what God actually wants to do. And we need to say to him, yes, Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this wonderful incident. Thank you, Jesus, that tired as you were, you embarked on a completely life-changing conversation with a Samaritan woman. And through her, you changed a whole village. Thank you for the people who have been faithful in sharing your good news with us and changed our lives because you've changed our lives because they were so faithful. Thank you for the many people that we 
see in this congregation and family of HT who are so passionate and well-equipped and good at sharing the faith that they have. And we pray we might encourage them, pray for them and support them. And we say to you, Lord, you, you can use us in any way you like. We're yours. We're your children. We're your family. We belong to you. All that we have, we just put at your disposal. All the relationships we have, the time that we have, the money that we have, the conversations we could have. We say, Lord, have your way because we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.